Hello. Welcome to The Bittersweet Life. We're so glad you're here. I'm Katie Sewell. I've been working in radio for over 15 years. A few years ago, I took a risk. I quit my job. My job as the lead producer of a daily public radio show. And I moved to Rome. Just for a year. And that is where this show began. And Rome is where my co-host Tiffany Parks lives, although she grew up here in Seattle with me. We met on the school bus in the sixth grade. And now we host this show together for you. Whether you boldly moved overseas like Tiffany did or reluctantly moved with much anxiety and regret like I did. And this isn't just a show for expats. It's a show for repats and explorers and people trying to get their courage up to do something new. It's a show about taking risk, trying new things, about exploration and discovery, about learning to fit in. Questions of home, questions of belonging, of what we want from the life that we have, about what we want to see, about how we want to change. Each show has a theme, so you can jump around if you wish. Or better yet, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows, and join us for the entire journey. The early episodes where we are both in Rome, the current episodes where I'm in Seattle and Tiffany is in Rome, and the future episodes when I move temporarily again to New Orleans. Join us, subscribe, tell your friends, and let us be your friends on your journey. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by Sarah Sullivan. Sarah is an international development professional living in the capital city of Botswana in southern Africa. She's lived in Botswana with her family for five years and lived in Pakistan prior to that. And she's written about the expat experience for the Wall Street Journal, as well as on her blog, Outlandish.com. Thanks for joining us again, Sarah. Thanks. Great to be here. So you sent me an article, which I guess you didn't post, but you sent to your family and friends. It has the title Ordeal, but in my head, I titled it The Glamorous Life of International Hospital Travel. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You could, you could. Yeah, because your story has all the elements of both stress and panic, along with sort of a jet-steading glamour. But um, before I blow the story, why don't you set the scene? What was going on with you and your family, and specifically your baby? Yeah, so April, which is actually, of course, fall in Botswana, since we're in the Southern Hemisphere, and it's a time where there's a lot of weird cold germs and infections going around. So both my five-year-old daughter and my two-year-old son had picked up some kind of bug. It just all of a sudden, almost overnight, turned really serious for my son. And he was even having trouble breathing. He had a high fever. My daughter had seemed to weather everything fine. It just was a cold. But then my son just didn't seem like he was well at all. So literally, I think it was 10 o'clock one night, we rushed him to the emergency room here in Havron, and he was immediately put on an oxygen mask because his, indeed, when they tested his oxygen, his what they called the oxygen saturation levels were very low. You want to see them at least 91, apparently, and he is, his was not even 80. I think it was like 78, 79. So he wasn't getting enough air, and it turns out he had pneumonia. 
So we spent one harrowing night in the hospital here. It's a private hospital. It's a much better facility than the average person in Botswana has access to, but it still was in some ways just less sophisticated than you'd expect by American standards, especially in terms of the staffing doctors being there and and the sort of trained level of the nurses uh, was not necessarily consistent. As soon as something happens health-related here in the field, we alert our medical evacuation insurance and just let them know something's going on. Then they do a full assessment and decide whether or not you have adequate health care in the country where you're in to handle the situation or whether you need to be transported to another location. So they decided in the morning that they got back to me. They had talked to doctors and they had had an assessment of his condition based on the medical report from the hospital here. And they decided he needed to be transferred to South Africa for more sophisticated medical care. And that led to my first experience in a private jet. My son and I were airlifted from Botswana to South Africa. And and like you said, it's all very glamorous, except you don't appreciate any of it at all because you're just so stressed at that point about your baby. I mean, he's two and a half, but you know, he'll always be my baby. And just making sure that he's going to be fine and not really knowing what to expect on the other side. I had to leave my husband and my daughter here because we had to go so quickly. And so it was just my son and I, and we just sort of felt like we were leaping into the unknown. But we are ultimately so grateful that we had the opportunity and had the resources to be transferred when we needed it, because that's not something that I never necessarily would have considered to be a deal breaker. Uh, we hadn't had to use our evacuation insurance before. And in fact, there have been times overseas due to different contracts and things where we haven't had it. And I didn't realize what a big deal that would be until the day came where we really needed it. Yeah, I do love that in this letter that you wrote home, you do say that when you get to the private jet and you're on the tarmac, you say to your son, look, Cy, this is all for you. Aren't you special? (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. Yeah. And I still, I have that picture in my mind so clearly. And I think when you're in a dramatic situation and you're worried about your child's safety and even their life, really, I mean, it's hard to, to see your child not breathing well. I think it's one of the scariest things you can, you can feel, but I think your mind tends to really, those images and those memories are become very strongly imprinted on your brain. So I feel like I sort of remember every detail of that two or three days. And I remember so on the tarmac, it was sunset. It was a beautiful sunset, actually. It was a beautiful day in Botswana, like a early fall day, but a breeze. It's never too cold here, so it wasn't cold. And there was a you know light wind, and we it just felt like a wonderful day to relax and go to the park. But here we were, you know, about to get onto an airplane for a medical emergency. And I do remember thinking, this is a beautiful moment, you know, with the natural beauty. And yet I was just so, so stressed and so um, preoccupied with holding the little oxygen mask on his face, you know, the whole time and just being obsessively watching the saturation count, which I, you know, I could watch it on a meter, basically, and just living and dying by that number, like, is he above 80? How is it? Is it 85? Okay, it's, it's down below 90. We need to get the, you know, I got to squish the oxygen mask closer to his nose. And that was my job for two days was trying to just make sure that he got oxygen, which was one reason I was glad to get to South Africa, because when I did, they did something that hadn't happened the entire time I was in Botswana, which is they took a little like oxygen prongs and they were set, you know, the size for a child and stuck them up his nose and taped them on. And it solved the problem, you know, but it was one of those small things that didn't happen here 
that made me realize we weren't quite in a place that was really equipped to handle the pediatric emergency in maybe the best way that could be handled. Well, I mean, that's curious to me, too. You've lived there for five years now, so yeah. and you've had two small children, so it stands to reason that you've been to the hospital slash emergency room a few yes. times. <laughs> in fact, in fact, I have. <laughs> that is a fact, yeah. Yeah, but then how do you judge? Because we already know that when you live in a different country from the one that you grew up in, the signals that you're going to be getting of this is a medical facility, this is everything is in control are going to be different from whatever is at home. That's right. We had an author on the show, um, I don't even know how many episodes ago named Eric Vance, who talked about how part of medicine is theater and they are as much making you believe in them by what they're wearing or in the United States, mm. the fact that they have a stethoscope around their neck and that the office is in pastel colors. I mean, obviously they know what they're doing, but every country sort of has their, this is what medicine looks like script, basically. That's fascinating, actually, because we, we had another emergency room visit when my son was only four months old with croup. And he's, I guess he's always had sort of some kind of breathing problems. But we went to the ER around one in the morning and the ER doctor on call was this very dapper gentleman wearing kind of like uh, almost like a nightclub shirt. I don't for <laughs> lack of a better word. I don't even know how to explain. And I'm sure he was very qualified and medically, you know, professional, but that's the sort of impression that my husband and I went away with was, wow, he did not look like a doctor. I mean, he was dressed like he was about to go out to a club afterwards, or maybe he had just gotten in from, so you're right. I think there are these visual markers and clues that we're just accustomed to from our home country when you go someplace else and you don't have them in a situation when you're already very nervous and worried, feeling insecure. I think that can exacerbate the anxiety. Yeah. And then of course you your son is, has this breathing issue that you're not used to dealing with. Right. So how do you make the assessment of saying whatever care they're giving isn't enough? Is it that you're trying to hold the oxygen mask to his face, which is making you feel like it's not safe enough? Or was that a call from the insurance company? How did you decide that you had to move him? That's a great question because, I mean, it's a combination. And I think there are two issues. One is the actual medical care in the facility. Like, if he had stayed in Botswana, would he have been fine? Almost certainly, yes. So it's not that it was in a life-threatening situation staying in Botswana, but there happens to be a different quality of care in the neighboring country, South Africa, and the hospital we were in, which was a state-of-the-art international standards, you know, New York City-type hospital with just better equipment and more expensive displays and the infrastructure and the trained nurses. It's so probably all the medication is available in both places. Cause again, it's a private hospital in Botswana. I'm not talking about a government hospital, which is a completely different situation and, and not something I would wish on anybody with a sick child uh, in, in any country probably, but um, you know, private hospitals. So they probably had all the medication. They certainly have qualified doctors, but for example, one example of the oxygen mask is the one I already gave. Another example is um, they had one machine to plug in to check his vital signs. And it was shared among the entire floor. Of course, when I'm told that he needs to be at his saturation levels need to be above 90 or 91 or whatever it was, I want to have that meter on my son every minute of the night. And I want to watch it every minute of the night because it's, you know, my child. And so every so often they would come in and take it to some other patient. And I would just lie there next to him, like listening to his breath and praying that they came back quickly enough so I could check to see with my own eyes what the number was. Um, and then at some point, it also was on a battery that the battery died. So 
in the middle of the night, I'm under the bed looking for the plug, you know, to plug in. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where the infrastructure matters. And it, this is, you know, this is the same in, in the United States as it is, you know, in Botswana, in South Africa, anywhere. And there's a wide difference in terms of how well resourced and staffed the hospitals are. That's why it's hard to make a decision when it comes to whether or not to transfer. By the morning, despite the problems with the oxygen mask and and the you know the rolling cart, I wanted our own cart. And of course, in defense of, of Botswana, I have to say, there's nothing more persistent and unsatisfiable, if that's a word, than a mom who's you know child is sick. Like I'm not saying that I was the easiest patient either. I was very demanding. I was like, I want his own machine and I want a nurse to come when I hit the button. I want her to come immediately. So you know, I'm not saying that I was necessarily being 100% reasonable either because I was panicked about his safety. So I probably overreacted also. But um, in terms of making the decision, a lot of it's taken out of your hands once you call the evacuation insurance. They sort of, they make their assessment because by the morning I did feel better about him. His oxygen levels had improved. I had a good conversation with a pediatrician on staff at that hospital. I felt confident about his assessment, about his abilities. He seemed like he really understood what was going on and was giving him the right medication. And I thought, you know what, we could probably do just fine. We could weather it here. It's just a little bit inconvenient in terms of me having to stay up all night rather than just fall asleep and assume that a nurse is going to take care of it, but we'll be fine. But at that point, the medical evacuation insurance came back and said, look, you probably would be fine, but the fact is your your son's having has been having trouble breathing for a few days now. And at that age, you just don't know when their lungs are going to sort of get too tired and want to quit on you. And if that happens, even though that's not necessarily likely, but it could happen, you want to be in a place with a ventilator, with that kind of intensive care unit where he could be attended to. At that point, they said, look, you got to move him. Even though you'll probably be fine there, just in case, that's what you have the insurance for. And so you need to, to make the then move. And it, I was reluctant. Honestly, at that point, I was just so tired. I hadn't slept in a few days. So the idea of flying to South Africa was daunting. How long was the flight? It's only like 45 minutes. It's very close. You fly from Gabs here, the capital, to jo- Johannesburg, which we call Joburg for short. It's not a long flight at all. That's one of the reasons I was more comfortable Coming here in the first place five years ago, I only had one child then, but my husband and I brought our one-year-old daughter here, and I remember being nervous about it, but also thinking, well, anything that happens, Joburg is a 45-minute flight away. I didn't actually think I was going to have to use that flight, but it turns out almost five years later, we did have to, and I was really happy to be within such a quick flight of a world-class hospital at that point. Well, and another interesting thing that you write about that happens is once you get there, to South Africa. I love that you just point out that the nurses are called sisters there, which is yeah. a great little detail. But also the fact that once your son is there, they basically force you to go away. Yeah. So what was that like? That was hard for me because I had been at my son's side literally at that point for, I don't know, three days. This actually all happened over Easter weekend. So it was like, that was how we spent our holiday. Unfortunately, we were having a we were going to have a big party at our house. We were last, um, roasting a whole lamb on a spit, like the Greek tradition. We had the lamb already butchered with our friends, like in the backyard, ready to go. It was sort of a whole thing. And then um, his pneumonia happened right before that, and obviously we missed the party. But um, yeah, it was hard because on one level, I was like, I've been with my son. I don't want to leave him. He's here alone in this country with me. They put him right directly into 
pediatric ICU. So I thought that was a fairly serious sign. They did not put him in the regular pediatric unit. But they said, you can't stay in the ICU. You're not allowed to. There's no parents there. you got to go. So I had to go. And ultimately, although it was hard to, to leave him, and he's all hooked up to all these machines, he's got this little uh, oxygen you know, prongs on, and he's got the IV in, and he just looks so sad and forlorn. It was tough to leave him. But um, you know, after a long conversation with the nurse, I got her number. She said, you can call me tonight if you want to check up on him in the middle of the night. Um, which I did because I'm a crazy mom. You'll see him in the morning and everything will be fine. And then I ended up actually being able to go to a hotel and get some sleep, which I hadn't done for quite a while. So in the end, that was probably good for me too. Yeah, you say that you ordered McDonald's delivery, which of course is something we've never heard of. (laughs) right? You know, the other place I could get McDonald's delivery was in Pakistan. So, oh, in New York City, you you can get McDonald's delivery in New York City too. So the three places in my life, I've never lived in New York, but I spent time there. Pakistan, they come in a little motorbike, like zipping right to your house. There's no minimum order. So you can order like a chocolate sundae in the middle of the night, which I have done, have absolutely done in Islamabad because it's open 24 hours and someone will zip to your house with just your chocolate sundae in a bag on their motorbike. So there's some awesome things about living overseas. You just have to appreciate. (laughs) Unfortunately, they, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your opinion, they don't have McDonald's in Botswana. Uh So I don't eat it very much. And my kids don't know McDonald's. You know, they have no idea what Happy Meal is, Ronald McDonald, stuff like that. Um, so we we have not had that McDonald's experience. But then in the hotel, because keep in mind, this is Saturday, the Saturday before Easter. Right. So no one is exactly open. You know, all the shops have closed. It's a holiday. It's quiet. A lot of people go out of town that weekend. I couldn't find anything else open. There was a little menu in the hotel and McDonald's was available. And I thought I hadn't really eaten much. I hadn't had time to eat. I feel like I ordered half the menu and just ate it all. And I was like, oh, (laughs) you know, weird sort of self-care moment where like stuffing my face with McDonald's was the healthiest thing I could do for myself, which I don't know that you get to say that very often. No, not very often. It's interesting because in this um, writing that you sent me, it's flipping back and forth between the beauty of the flight, the terror of your son being sick And then you kind of flip into the larger question of acknowledging that you're privileged compared to other people around you. Yeah, absolutely. That you discover that 3 million children die of pneumonia every year, mostly in developing countries uh, in which you are living in a developing country. And a lot of it has to do with you had all these resources to mobilize and they do not. Yeah, exactly. We talked a little bit about this the last time you were on the show, but I think all of us live with our own levels of privilege in life. And some people are able to ignore it a little bit more than others, either by choice or just by sheer ignorance. But you kind of have to acknowledge it and see that you have this privilege all the time. Absolutely. How does that feel? I do live with it all the time. It's very, it's very real, a present sort of thought in our lives. Because for example, uh, our nanny who lives with us, She's from Zimbabwe instead of Botswana, which is common. A lot of the domestic help and gardeners here are from Zimbabwe. Um, So she's not covered by any kind of national health insurance as most Botswana are. And she can't afford the price of most medical care, care, even at the government hospital, which we would consider to be fairly cheap by American standards. So if someone in her family, you know, kind of jams their finger on the basketball court or has some weird pain in their abdomen, they don't really 
they don't really go to the doctor. I, I mean, they can't really go to the doctor until it gets so, so serious that it's life threatening. And then they try to borrow money from friends or their employer or whomever, um, to go, but it's, it's a precarious lifestyle. And it's one that, you know, I see because our nanny lives with us and, you know, we do our part to sort of take care of her in insofar as we can, you know, she had to have a tooth removed that was hurting her. We paid for that. And, you know, she's, she hurt her neck. We'll give her a physio, we'll pay for a physical therapy appointment, you know, things like little things that we can do. Um, she's young. Luckily she hasn't had any major health problems, but the fact is she and her entire extended family are living in a situation where any kind of major health issue could be catastrophic, could become life-threatening, you know, instantly, even if it's a, something that could be treated. They just don't have the funds for it. So that is something that I think about all the time, even when I'm not in a situation where one of my own family members needs medical care. And in Botswana, like I said, you know, it's a middle-income country. It's certainly not as well off as the United States, but it's much less impoverished than a lot of countries in sub-Saharan Africa. So even the people in Botswana are more privileged than in Malawi or Zambia or Mozambique, depending on which, you know, obviously which population you're talking about. So it's, it's relative even here. And then, like I said, the government hospitals versus the private hospitals. We were at a private hospital in Botswana, a relatively uh, well-off country in Africa, and still you know, it didn't meet the threshold determined by my international evacuation insurance. So it's just another reminder that as an American with health insurance, which is provided by my employer for me, I am coming from this enormous place of privilege and I can decide if necessary, we can get on a plane. I have no idea how much that costs. I imagine a fortune. I never saw a bill. It just gets paid directly by the evacuation insurance when my son needs it. And when the other thing that happens when you live overseas and you have kids who are sick is you, you become this terrible amateur medical professional, right? Because it's the middle of the night and you're trying to decide, should I go to the AR? Is it worth going? Is this nothing? So you start getting on the WebMD and the Google and the, mm -hmm. you know, you can really, I've learned way more than I ever needed about different, how to spot meningitis rash and the difference between a pertussis cough and a, you know, croupy cough, things that normally I would just call my pediatrician at home. And I would say, Hey, if it's really bad, I'll call 911. There's no 911 here. So almost as a protective measure, you end up trying to find out as much information as you can so that you can decide when is it an urgent emergency and when do I need to really escalate this to the next level? It's just a harder, a much harder decision here than it would be in the States. And, um, I do feel very lucky that we have such amazing resources. Uh, it's very, very obvious when you live here, you know, how much more we have re related to healthcare than, you know, the average person in the world. Yeah. And I mean, obviously your nanny would have known that you went through all of this, right? Yeah. That, yeah. That this is what happened. Does that change how your relationship between each other feels? Like, does it make it feel like you're on a more uneven footing than it already did? Or, I mean, how does that dynamic work? Because I know that you're also friends, like you're working as a team to r help raise these kids together too. But Yeah. No, she loves, I mean, she loves her kids. That's the thing. Like she's, she's known Sai since he was born. You know, she met him the day he came home from the hospital and she's very invested in their lives. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'd have to ask her, but when it all happened, she was so worried about Sai also and so concerned. And she was, you know, she was like, she was my, you know, my right hand woman, like doing the temperature checks, counting the number of breaths, you know, doing whatever, you know, like 
medication schedule he needed, whatever, homeopathic remedies on his chest, like all the stuff she was doing it with me. So we really felt like we were in the trenches together with my husband as well, of course. And she was the one who was like, yeah, if you have to go to the hospital, you have to go. And when we went, she's very religious. Her family's very religious. She was, they were all praying and fasting for us and just really coming together around their concern for our son. And it, it is beautiful and touching, but you, you do have to wonder how much she thinks about the great divide in our circumstances. Like if she had a child, she doesn't have any kids, but what kind of care would she be able to provide that child if, if he was having trouble breathing? And, you know, it's, it's something she's always grown up with. So that's her normal, but she does live with us now and we have a completely different normal. So I don't know what that is like from her perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that you question in this article too is basically what is your responsibility? Like if you know that 3 million children die and now you kind of know what it looks like since yeah. you were right there with your son. Yeah. I'm not saying that you've come up with any solutions, but you do say like what should be done to help these help these babies. It's sort of an open-ended question. Yeah. I mean, I, you can't help but ask yourself that question. It's one of those things where human nature is such that it's easy not to think about something until it's right in your face, until it happens to you, until it happens to your neighbor. I never thought about pneumonia as being all that dangerous, to be honest. I, I kind of associated it maybe with old people. It's Or, you know, with that phrase when people say, don't go outside when it's wet, or you go catch your death of pneumonia. But I, I think of that as something like my grandma would say, probably because in my grandma's day, maybe it was more fatal for American kids. But in the United States of today, I imagine, I don't know the stats for America, but I imagine that the fatality rate for pneumonia has to be extremely low because we do have such robust, at least medication schedules and emergency rooms. And I'm not saying healthcare in America doesn't have major, major issues. That's not my point here. But just that, you know, we have all sorts of, um, we have a certain expectation that if a child is having trouble breathing, that they will they will get help ideally. But yeah, when I read, of course, in the middle of my, the middle of the night Googling that I don't recommend to any worried parent, don't recommend that you do. I did come across that stat, 3 million children, and I was blown away by it because I, you know, we do a lot of work with HIV AIDS here in Botswana. It's the country has the third highest prevalence of HIV in the world. So most of our health efforts are related to HIV as well as tuberculosis because they often go together. So I do feel like I know a lot about HIV and TB, but I never really gave a second thought to pneumonia and what a worldwide killer it is of children until this experience happened to me. It's so interesting. Before we end, I want to ask you a totally unrelated question. Sure. Just because we did an episode a few weeks ago on climate and weather. Yeah. One question we got into was, if you live in the Southern Hemisphere and you're from the Northern Hemisphere, how long does it take you to get used to the months and the seasons being opposite? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. I would say, I would say after five years, I still think of September, October, November as fall. I still think of it. Like I'll even say oh, well, next fall we'll have a party for Lila. Or, you know, I still think of spring as being March, April, May. So that has not gone out of my brain. But in terms of actually your body adjusting to the weather, I feel like that happens pretty quickly. Like I'm used to Christmas being really hot now and having pool parties and barbecues. And <laughs> I'm used to June, July, August being crisp and cold. And we usually have a Christmas in July party where we do it up and like have all the winter foods that you'd associate with the holidays because it's, you know, nice holiday weather. Your body adjusts pretty quickly. 
And I would also say that living in the Southern Hemisphere has made me a complete wuss. Like I lived in Boston for 10 years. I know how to deal with winter, but as soon as I spent even a couple of years here, now I just get really, really cold really fast. And I'm, I'm kind of a sissy when it comes to cold weather. So in some ways, I feel like maybe we can never leave because I'm, you know, I'm used to complaining it's cold when it's like 40 degrees out. And I know that's not cold. I feel like the last time that we talked, you you and your husband and family were in a bit of a turning point where you were trying to figure out if you were staying there or if didn't you both have something like two different job offers one was there and one was away that that happens to us on like a monthly basis <laughs> i think like since then he's probably had another four or five job offers in really interesting locations but yeah it's always hard to know what to do as a tandem couple and we keep looking at other countries other jobs other positions even moving back to washington washington dc but we're still here. So there's something about Botswana that we really love and it feels like home. And I guess we're not quite ready to leave yet. Regardless of any medical emergencies. Yes, exactly. No matter what, it still feels like home. Well, we'll have to catch up with you again. You can follow Sarah Sullivan whenever you like. She's at outlandish.com. And I will post a link to your blog on our website, thebittersweetlife.net. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this. Of course. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I'd be curious if you do end up following up with your nanny about what she thinks. It might be a very difficult conversation to have. Yeah. But I would love to hear it if you were willing to do it. Yeah. It's a good question. Well, thanks so much. This is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thanks for all the ways you support us. Give us a good rating on iTunes, maybe five stars if you like the show. It will help other people discover that we exist. Thank you. You're the best. <laughs>